Hello, everyone. Welcome to this special edition of The Crownsman Show. I'm your host, Jared Downey. With me is Gaudi Molina. How are you today, Gaudi? I'm good, thank you. Um, you've been, uh, you've, You've probably been setting everything up longer than the show is going to actually run today. We've got, uh, we have four? Four guests. Four guests. Four guests plus you and I. So the six of us on this. Um, this is the Crownsman Christmas panel 2020. What we've done is we brought hosts from, uh, I won't say all over the world, that's a big place, but the United Kingdom, Australia slash New Zealand. Um, Peter Finn will set what that is uh, up. Um, Alberta, Canada. And uh, two of us are from BC, Canada. So it's going to be fun. Um, before we get into it, please stick with us. And uh, who is sponsoring the episode today, Gowdy? Right. And then we'll jump right in. So today, today we have Cal Tire Mining Tire Group. Whatever your goals, reducing costs, improving uptime, or fulfilling sustainability commitments, Cal Tire's Mining Tire Group has proven solutions to help you reach your targets. With proactive planning, tire management innovation, and highly trained team members at Cal Tire, they believe you can expect more at every stage of a tire's life. To learn more, you can visit them at caltiremining.com or email them at infocaltire.com. Next up, we have Power Zone Equipment. When you need a specialized team of world-class engineers for your oil and gas pipeline, seawatering, or any fluid handling needs, you want to visit powerzone.com. In addition to their inventory of rebuilt pumps, motors, engines, they also have an amazing team to design and engineer your systems, no matter the challenge, no matter the location. Get in the zone with PowerZone. Visit them at PowerZone.com. And last but not least, we've got Savannah Equipment. Savannah Equipment supplies new and used mining equipment around the world, from placer to underground to ore processing plants. They have gold concentrating tables, trommels, and mineral jigs in stock now. You can view their entire inventory at SavannahEquipment.com where you will find more equipment every day. There we go. Bam. Alrighty. Thank you very much, Gaudi. Um, okay. I'm going to, hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. I am going to do a quick read off of each of the, uh, of each of you. Um, now we've got our, our first uh, guest um, is Alexandria Shrake. She um, is part of Energy Minutes, where what they do is they keep um, every everyone in the loop on what's happening in energy, technology, and climate. Um, and they pr produce these really neat animated and educational videos. The next, uh, the next guest is, uh, I am not going to get this right, this last name. I'm sorry, Frank. Uh, Frank, how do you say it? Frank? Frank Schlichten. Schlichten. Yeah, it's, it's actually not hard for me to say until the camera comes off. Um, you <laughs> host Exploring Abandoned Minds. Um, that, that's an incredible, they've got, uh, he's got 136,000 subscribers, uh, 15 million views or 150 million views. Um, and he explores all these abandoned mines across US, Canada, Mexico, we'll get into that. Then there's Peter, Peter Haddock uh, with content with media, uh, a business focused on creating great content for the construction and, mo construction and mobile plant sectors and making sure it is shared in the media. He's joining us out of the UK. Hello. And lastly, Peter Finn, uh, full production. Um, he is, you're in New Zealand, but you're Australian. Is that right, Peter? That's correct, mate. Yeah. And uh, I've been a guest on your show. You provide a platform for listeners to get behind the conversation that people are having in the mining industry. So that's who we've got on the show today, everybody. Um, welcome. Um, are we all ready to roll? <laughs> sure are. All right. Peter, Peter Finn, I'm going to start with you. Um, I, I've been on your show before, and and I wanted to start with um, you. You 
the reason we kind of picked everybody from these from these different shows is everybody sort of has a different angle. We're all creating online content, but um, we all sort of have different reasons for creating it. You have um, the full production podcast, um, but you also are a mining contractor. So um, I just want to talk first off what the value the show doing your show has brought to your your other you know the the big business which is face contracting. It's funny um, you bring it up. I was, I was thinking about as you're doing the sponsors. I don't, I don't want to rave on about your sponsors. So obviously they're um, already got been given their plug. But Cal Tires. Whenever I, I haven't been to many um, mining expos uh, in the last year because of the current status of the world at the moment. Um, but Cal Tires. I actually don't use a lot of tires in my business, but I know who they are because they mm-hmm. sponsor a lot of the right events that I go to. And um, the whole idea of the podcast for me was um, being a mining kid from, you know, zero to now at the age of 35, 36, um, and and probably living in New Zealand the last five years and having offices in Australia, I started to get a a bit of a perception of the industry or how people perceive the industry. So, uh, and the industry is me, right, from ground up. So I was really keen to try and paint the industry in a better light. And how it's given me the benefit, well, truthfully, uh, you know, Jared and, and, and Frank, um, you know, I've had Frank on the podcast, which is yet to be released, but you get to develop some uh, really good relationships. And that's how it's benefited Face. Mm. Because for me personally, especially in the mining game at the moment, it is pretty um, on a big, decent upswing or a decent boom. But it's not what you do, it's who you do it for. And if you're doing things for good people and good clients, it goes a long way. And you've got that relationship there. Well, you've got the ability to help, be able to have tough conversations that lays down that good foundation to make sure we're all on the same page and getting the job done from all different aspects, from a, a social license to operate in, in, in mining communities um, to environmental impacts. Uh, right to the end product, you know, people know where their ore is coming from, whether it be gold, lead, zinc, copper, um, you know, whatever the material might be. Yeah, your your show, um, you know, and I've listened to it and you, you really do come at it from every angle and it's really focused in on that mining sector, but you... You really, um, you've really focused on that human element, um, you know, about um, inspiring people and motivating teams and that. Uh, just on a personal, professional level, how much is that? Have you had people on the show and then halfway through the podcast went, there's a ton of value, even if it, they hadn't have been on the show, just being able to talk to this person. I'm, I'm sure you've experienced that. My personal interest is probably the most selfish thing that I've got going on this podcast, because I just get to sit down and pick everybody's brains and you know, ask questions and uh, it's like an, it's like a free education um, for myself. Um, yeah, around, no, it, uh, sorry, sorry mate, go ahead. Know. No, it's just, it, it's just a free education, right? I get to sit there and ask some tough questions and, and pick their brain and, and learn heaps. It's not just the mining industry too, right? You get guys that cross over mm-hmm. from infrastructure, construction guys, you know, to guys like Frank who go into abandoned mines. Like that's, that's a world that wow. I'm, no, I'm not exposed to, right? So yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, yeah, well, uh, let's, Frank, let's jump over to you. Um, do you, you know, anybody who looks up exploring abandoned mines, I mean, I've, I've been in some of these mines, um, one specific time when I certainly was not geared up to do it and shouldn't have been in there. Um, we won't, we won't go any further than that. Um, it is a whole different kind of dark when you go into these mines. And I'm wondering though, when you're going in, how dangerous is it? I mean, you've, you've. <laughs> 
is that why you've gained such a huge audience, do you think? Um, so I'll start with the first question. How dangerous are some of these mines that you're going into? And then I want to talk a little bit about the audience side. Well, you know, that's a very difficult um, question to answer. Like a lot of people ask me for advice because they're kind of interested in going mines and stuff. And the precautions you take really depends on uh, the formations you're at, what type of mines you're going in, that kind of stuff. So it's a very broad question. There's not really a simple answer to that. Um, um, you know, so for the most part, we go into hard rock mines. We don't deal with coal mines at all. Coal mines are very dangerous because you have mm. toxic gases in there. You got uh, methane, black damp in there. Just a really nasty place, really soft material. So we never go into coal mines. So, you know, if someone's asking, you know, like I say, I have a very large following. All kinds of people are asking me these things and, they, and, they're, and they're trying to get advice. And I really hesitate to give them advice because, um, the, you know, the advice on mines and how safe they are depends on that particular mine. And in our experience, I've been in, in, I think we've got our 234th show this week, put a show up every week for the last six years. I've been in that many mines, more mines than that, actually, because some of we don't, uh, we don't want to film it. So, um, so the safety aspect, just generally speaking, um, mines are a dangerous place when they're operating because there's all kinds of equipment here. They're doing blasting in there. They have trains running in there. Um, they're uh, running stuff in ore chutes and different things. So it's, uh, it's like, um, if you are at a logging shore or something, you go somewhere where they're logging, you know, they got machines running around, you get run over, tree falls on you and all this sort of stuff. Uh, if you were there at night in a logging thing and all the machines are quiet, nobody's doing nothing and you just walk through there, don't touch anything, there's very little danger. Um, you know, because there's you're, you're not, the, the mine is kind of a peaceful place. These mines are old. They might have been not have been operating for a hundred years or so. And even though, you know, let's say the back and stuff hasn't been scaled. You know, there's a bunch of loose rock. As long as you don't touch anything to change that, um, there's very little danger, providing that you're monitoring the air and there's not any other hazards. You know, so th there's a lot of caveats to that. So it's, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, most people think it's, it's it, for me, they watch the show and they think I'm crazy, I'm doing things, but it's more because they're outside of their comfort level. Because mm -hmm. when you're in the pitch black, you're going down. You know, we, we go on, rope. we've been 1,500 feet down, you know, shafts going straight down and we have all kinds of rope come. People, that, they don't do that kind of stuff. They don't, so it looks crazy to them because they've never done it. Probably like if you watch the guy that was washing a skyscraper or something, they go, oh, that guy's is that just crazy and all that. If you do that for a living, it's not a big deal, right? So it's more perspective, I guess, more perceived danger uh, than, than there is maybe actual danger. But, you know, you still have to have the right equipment to do it properly, right? You, I mean, you're... Frank, I mean, there's no, uh, I mean, you, you just have a huge following. Did that following come back? I mean, um, did that, was that right out the gate? Did you expect it to be that popular? Did you have sort of a, a, a hunch that you were onto something that people really would gravitate to you? Or did it take a few years to build that kind of following up? Well, I, I had an interest in, I had an interest in filmmaking and, and, you know, and this, what we're doing is actually telling a story. So for that, to make that interesting, first of all, you have a pretty good story to tell and you have to have an interesting person, you know, to do that. And I first started off, uh, I got retired. I was looking for something to do. And I had an airplane. I was flying around. I was trying to make videos about flying and people weren't that interested in it. And uh, we flew over a big mine here called uh, up at the Phoenix area. There's a band in town called Phoenix. And it was the largest copper smelter in, in the British Commonwealth at the time, just close to where I live in Grand Forks. And it just looks like Swiss cheese up there and all these holes in there. And I had explored some mines when I was younger. So we started going in there and um, the people around here, they don't know anything much about it. They think it's all blasted shut. But there's actually 10 miles of tunnels in there and there's trains in there from you know over 100 years ago. And there's all kinds of really cool stuff. We spent 
a whole month in there going through the whole thing and frozen place, all kinds of really cool stuff. And people were really interested because nobody would go in there. I mean, it seemed crazy to them, but they're really interested in what was in there. So, um, and then, and then the other thing that made it really popular is, is um, so most of these old abandoned mines, somebody has their mineral rights to it, but they're not actively mining it. So it is actually public land, but they have the mineral rights to it. So um, a junior mining company that had the rights that doesn't mind it, there's nothing been done, they're just holding out of the rights. Um, you know, they started saying I was trespassing and all this kind of stuff, which was a bunch of nonsense. So we got charged with that. We beat it in court because they only had the mineral rights to it. So, um, but this woman was really nasty. So we had a big back and forth in, in the papers with the editorial and that, you know, that brought a lot of drama that brought all kinds of people interested. So that really helped me out to get kind of started. <laughs> If you I can believe that, that. That's and, what I need to catapult the art show. No, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and and it is some. Yeah, it's that 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 conflict though. Definitely online. I mean, we've uh, some of the most publicity we had is when we we actually dared to say something about a mine had done something wrong, and that's when we got our backlash because we're sort of supportive of industry, and it's like, well, no, it's we still want to hold people accountable. Um, Alexandria, um, Alexandria, you uh, you have a it's a completely different angle on it, um, and and on the sh on yours, I've I've actually was looking around online, um, and I, I happened across you just by chance on LinkedIn um, from a post that you had shared or something, and um, and then I, I saw the organization you were part of, and I saw these videos. So first off, I just want you to talk a little bit um, about about Energy Minute and and just what your goal is, because um, you're really going to a different demographic. You're actually educating young people about the energy sector, so completely different angle. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about it? Yeah, thanks, Jared. I think the first most important thing to understand is that heavy industry is incredibly complex, and our goal at Energy Minute, I guess, is to enable access to that complexity, because uh, I mean, too often we hear from our stakeholders that like sound bites just don't tell a story. Um, and Energy Minute uses a bit of self-deprecating humor, which maybe you've heard a little bit from me already, uh, but then combined with technical rigor and sort of extreme technical excellence in how we research uh, and authorize our content. Um, so I think it's enabling access to both the public through our newsletter, our videos, infographics, and then to teachers and youth just by building those relationships. That's kind of a common theme I've seen in in your podcast, Jared, is just that this theme of relationships and these relationships are kind of what withstands the test of time when there's complexity or polarization. Um, and I guess the other piece with Energy Minute is that we always try and find the story behind the story. Uh, so like yourself, Frank, we try and tell stories about these complex times. Um, and like most recently, my, one of my favorite examples right now, we wrote a piece, we called it Something Rotten in the State of Denmark. And recently, Denmark had announced that they're going to cut all their production in by 2050. Um, Greenpeace was heralding this move, lots of exciting stuff um, on the climate activism front. But then we thought, like, well, what does this mean globally? Like, what's the real story behind this? And it turns out this North Sea production that Denmark is shutting in is less than 2% of production in just the North Sea. So every barrel they take off, they're going to have to add another one. And I'm like, you know, that can't just be the only part of the story. So how did they, how did Denmark get here? How did their parliament get there? So we researched a little more and it turns out a coalition of social conservatism and economic leftism, so kind of really strong um, immigrant policy coalition that developed with extreme environmentalism had built a four party coalition that took parliament. So I think it's like, 
the headlines just never tell the story and energy minute tries to really get at the bottom of what's behind all, all what's behind the complexity yeah and that's that is what i some of the the you have you have the like the the graphic videos that you show that just break down things in a very clear way but also the information is so well researched um you know where the energy is coming where it gets distributed to i mean and it's and it's presented in a way that there's not this sort of so much of the content it gets so skewed because within about 30 seconds i go oh, okay they're trying to put some sort of spin on it and so now the the information is getting all malip- manipulated and all i want it's, it's kind of yeah it's kind of like when i watch you know frank going to mine. i just want to see it i don't <laughs> i don't want all the other stuff um and has that was that a real goal from the beginning to get that information try to essentially get clean fact I mean, first of all, yes, like it's a whole team effort. We have like a 30 year senior researcher that works with us that kind of keeps us in line. Her name is Michelle. She's amazing. And a whole, and a whole team, uh, Aaron and the gang. Um, but I will say initially just coming from like the industrial energy complex of Canada, a lot of us worked in the oil and gas sector and we were initially laughed at. They're like, you can't talk about climate and the intersection of sustainability with energy. Like you guys are crazy. And it was a few business leaders, um, like Chris Lipicki and Peter Tritzakian that believed in us and said, actually, these kids, I mean, this was four years ago, we were in our 20s, um, that we built this organization and we have been militant about, like, anyone who donates to us cannot have any say in direction. Um, we seek multiple, multiple perspectives for all our content and we get a lot of flack from a lot of folks, um, on both kind of all over the country, all over the world on our content, but we feel that that's part of the learning process and it's about engaging with those perspectives. So, I mean, yeah, we're little, but we're really proud to have come as far as we've gotten. Yeah. And do it very well. Um, you know, uh, well, and it is when you go right down the middle, sometimes you get flack from both sides. I don't, if there's any comedy fans, well, well, Peter Haddock, you're, you're from the UK. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Mr. Cleese, John Cleese. Oh, indeed. Yes. He's one of our great exports. Yes, he exactly. He's got this great bit of where he does this whole thing about, um, kind of all these people you get to to uh hate and one of them is everybody gets to hate the moderate um the kind of the right down the middle guy um peter you um your shows it's you have i would say in some ways there's a a similarity to what we you and i do um there's um there's there's information that's shared you're you're sort of there's some nuts and bolts part we always um you know, my fascination with with things sort of bleeds into the show. So I always gear towards that. Um, but you're going sort of a step further where you're going on site. You're you're actually talking to these guys with the machines working off camera. Um, you know, you've got Richie Brothers sponsoring you, who we've had on the show. How much of what you have done um, was planned out or or did it did it sort of evolve that way? Well, I'll tell you um, all the big secret is the the fact that I used to be in PR. So for 14 years, I did the PR for Finning in the UK, the uh, UK version of the Finning Canada. Um, So I've worked with the Caterpillar brand for 14 years. And then um, I decided to, to do the big jump and set up my own business in July 2019. And um, at that point, uh, I was working for a, for another agency and set up my my own business. And um, I'd worked with all the journalists and, and I'd worked with people when I was behind the camera, trying to get them to talk in front of the camera. And I went to a show and I thought, 
what am I going to do with my life now? I've set up my own business. What kind of content am I going to do? What's going to happen? And I started to put myself in front of the camera and ask people questions instead of being behind the camera. And um, I did loads and loads of videos at this show um, before I um, even started uh, in proper. And then uh, people just picked up on those and they said, hey, we'd like you to come and do some more stuff on our sites. Um, I became a, um, a journalist because uh, I've lots of technical stuff. I've got an engineering background, um, but basically became a journalist for a magazine because I was going then on site again. I was like, look, let's do more in front of the camera and let's really tell the people's stories. And I think in the UK, one of the things that people don't realize is know how important the different elements of the site are and so you know a lot of people uh, that are the the most important people on the site are the people that actually drive the machines you know you get a great operator out there you get somebody that's using the technology well and they can do wondrous things you know they can pay for themselves in a matter of months you know um and you know when we're talking about the energy perspective and when we're talking about you know, I love this thing and it sort of says well to track, you know, so the fuel that goes into these pieces of equipment from the well, how does it get to the track and how do we actually use that more efficiently? And I've got this passion for sort of technology. And, and again, in the UK, we've got a typical world in which we are in, which is male dominated and you know an older male dominated industry so i want more women more people from ethnic diverse groups involved in the industry and stuff like that so i i just spend a lot of my time being super positive about the industry because i love it but also it's the best kept secret you know everyone you talk to i mean listening to peter's podcast <clears throat> looking at what frank does we're really passionate about what we do. We really love what we do. And if you get into this industry, you can have a huge career that, that spans all sorts of exciting different things. But the story doesn't get told. Where everybody in the UK thinks if you're in construction, you stood outside in the rain and it's rain today, I can tell you, um, laying bricks or bashing some timber together, getting soaking wet. And it's just not like that. So, you know, I came about, uh, then managed to, to to get a conversation with Ritchie Brothers who they, they want to support the industry. They, they go across brands and across the industry and ultimately they want more people to buy and sell equipment with them. But they recognize that there's a lot that needs to be said in the industry and they were really, really supportive of it. And again, with the technology front, uh, been supported by Leica Geosystems, who's hexagon in the, uh, in the States and Canada. Um, to talk about technology. And I think that's allowed me to, to talk to the people I want to talk to because those are the people that people want to hear from. And that's why it's like, that's why it's all come about. So it's it's crazy, really. It's all about relationships, you know? Um, yeah. Relationships with journalists. And I'm now building a relationship with you guys because you just got to put yourself out there and do something positive, not negative. There's a lot of negativity. In the UK, we love to whinge. We love a good grump uh, session, you know, and that Grinch top, uh, we probably sell an awful lot of those, Frank, in the UK. You know? We love to whinge and moan, but, you know, the, again, it, you might not have noticed, but I'm wearing a, a, a Santa's driven sleigh with JCB, who's our 
uh, 75 years old. Uh, they knew I was coming on the show. They sent me a jumper to wear for this show, you know? So that's promoting the good British manufacturing while I'm there as well. <laughs> one of our, uh, we've got a JCB on our Crownsman Energy show. One of that's, uh, one of the units is that. Um, the, uh, no, it's great what you do. It's, it's funny, you and I actually, it's a similar start because we, um, we were doing more consulting um, at one time and then um, we, we did, went to a show, we were trying to make a splash. So we did interviews and nobody, nobody cared about our consulting services and everybody cared about the interviews. So uh, fast forward, that's, that's how we actually came to be. And very seldom do we do any of that consulting work anymore um, just because the show keeps us so busy. Um, I've got to, um, I'm going to jump ahead here to a section. Um, I'm going to start with Frank. Most, and then I'm going to go to Peter Alexandria, and then back to you, Peter Haddock. Um, what's a show, Frank, that stands out for you? Either it gave you the biggest rush, it was the most popular, or just anything about there's a particular episode out of all the over 200 you've done that just stood out to you. And we'll put a link to it and everything, um, you know, in the in the section in the the write up section. Um, is there a is there a project a show that stands out? Um. <laughs> that's a difficult question to ask because we got so many different aspects of stuff. So what we try to do is not do the same thing all the time. So we were just up in the in the Yukon and and we found a really cool old shovel that was been in the bush and nobody was from 1904. And that's something we don't usually do, but it's a mining thing, an old steam shovel. And then we were up in the Yukon and looked at a bunch of the gold stuff there because a buddy of mine runs in that industry. And then we were up in Faro and looked at the hugest, biggest reclamation job everywhere in the world, the, the Faro mine. Um, last year we were down in Arizona for the whole winter and we went into a mine called the, um, the Castle Dome. We found seven pairs of, of jeans from the 1800s that are worth like $50,000 a pair that we didn't get to keep. Uh -huh. So you know, there's just, you know, so, and that's one thing about the show. We try to do all these different things that, that you know, that just doesn't keep it boring. So it's, it's really difficult to, uh, people are always asking, what's the most favorite thing you ever found in a mine? Um, so the one thing that we do, the big thing we're doing here is we've got a huge museum of 4,000 square feet. And we try yeah. to get uh, all this stuff, and uh, we're going to have a nonprofit, and it's going to be here after I'm gone. So we've got a lot of black people say, "Well, you're 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 taking stuff, uh, you know, historical stuff and all that," but um, it's all getting caved in. The mining companies are just demolishing the stuff, wrecking all the buildings, and trying to make it safe for the public. And we're trying to get as much of it we can while it's still around. And um, so we're making a show about all the stuff we found in the last couple of years. We got all the way from we got all kinds of operating stuff. We're building an operating tram. There's no none that we know of anywhere. Um, we have uh, drills, markers uh, uh, and stuff that's all operates on here. We've got a huge compressor and all the, uh, and we have explosives and all, all, all kinds of stuff. And so we're really trying to get people, um, Canadians are not that interested in history. Americans are very interested in mining history and stuff, but we're really trying to save as many of these artifacts as we can, tell these stories that's just fascinating stories about these mines. The, the underground mining is what we're most interested in, starting from the late 1800s to maybe 1920. And, uh, you know, there's whole cities underground and just a fantastic amount of equipment and technology. It's just amazing how fast the technology evolved when the copper age came and all, all the towns got electricity and, and copper was a big deal. It was, uh, it's just really fascinating how all these mines operated and what these, what these men were able to do all these years ago. That, it's, that, that kind of brought us to a standard of living that we have today that, that we take it for granted, uh, but it wasn't there. Um, you know, a lot of these mines, when they started, they didn't have cars or anything like that. You know, they had these aerial tramways that they built to uh, to bring ore from the high up the mountains down because they they didn't have no cars or trucks or nothing to move ore. It was just 
it's amazing what they did back then. It's uh, it, uh, we're lazy compared to. I mean, those people worked so hard, you know, to put food on the table and feed their families. Just really, I'm in awe of what they did. And to see all this stuff that's left behind to tell that story is just fascinating. Where where is uh, where is your museum, Frank? Uh, just for people who don't know. Uh, I live in Grand Forks, British Columbia, so it's only a half mile uh, north of Washington State. So uh, in the middle of British Columbia, about halfway between, uh, not far from Kelowna, about halfway between Calgary and Vancouver, so right along the border. So um, it's open uh, free of charge. I don't charge anyone. We take donations and uh, we, we get mostly uh, people come from the States and uh, all, over the, all over the place that are traveling around that are kind of make a special effort to come to see it. Yeah, I need to, I need myself need to stop by and see that. Uh, Peter, uh, is there an episode? I mean, you've had some... You've had some pretty in-depth uh, interviews um, over over the time you've been doing the show. Is, is there an episode that stands out, a conversation you've had that uh, maybe even just af affected you personally in a way or, or just that you thought really the industry sort of needed that type of interview? Um, yeah, hearing Frank talk, I, I, I've done a podcast with Frank. It hasn't come out yet, but it needs to come out. And being an underground metalliferous kid, um, I really enjoyed the journey, especially the way, you know, Frank goes right back into the old mines. And, you know, I'll talk about some podcasts that I've had in the moment to how uh, resourceful we are now today, especially from an underground metalliferous open cut. You've heard Pete talk before about the, some of the innovation coming on the construction scene as well. Um, it's quite incredible when you have a good reflect. It's like in life, right? You reflect back and, and see where you've come from over the last five years and what's changed and how you've evolved. But look, to, to put it down to one, I, I couldn't. I, I was going to mention one of my highest viewed one is, is number 12, which is, is a podcast with myself and my, and my mate Robbo. He um, interviewed me. And, and the reason why it's the most popular is because I actually make everybody listen to it who one, doesn't know me, or two, is going to come work for me. Because it's a big thing for me. Um, a lot of miners, they, they want to be wanted. And that's all good and well, but it's not what you do, it's who you do it for. And, and this sort of pit, this interview Robbo did with me, he'd done a really good job. Obviously, he's got his own podcast, so he interviews a lot of people. And he was actually one of the guys that inspired me to do a podcast on mining. But it paints a picture to who I am and what I'm about. And I think that's really important. People need to take into consideration before they go apply for a job or um, go and have an interview. And uh, scarily enough, people, um, you know, I, I hear in, in the mining circles, people, you know, oh, I put out 100 resumes. You know, you think about it, if you nail your resume uh, and you get it in front of the right people and you get that job, that's going to provide for all your, all your fun stuff, right? But people just throw it around like it's a, a bar coaster. And um, I think we need to put more energy into, um, you know, people and how they're brought on. To, into the mining industry and what obsession they've been painted with. But, mate, I can go right down to, and I've done 150 or so podcasts now. Um, don't seem like, I think, I think I'm up to 115 that's been aired. I'm not too sure what number I'm up to at the moment. Um, but some cool ones I've done. Um, Casey Stoner. Does anyone know Casey Stoner, the, the GP motorbike rider? Has anyone heard of him before? No, obviously, mate. He's, he's, an, Aussie, he's an Aussie guy. Um, he, Valentino Rossi and them guys who, who ride them... Um, really fast motorbikes he was obviously elite with them he had a, a really bad injury but uh, one of my mates in Kalgoorlie had an expo and he was the star show and I was like mate what would it take to get him on the podcast and uh, literally I, I and that day and Pete you obviously you talked about going to events and you, you podcast and talk to a lot of people it can become really draining right from a personality point of view mm -hmm. 
And I've done a fair few of them now. And, I, and one, so I was kicking back in my room. And I was half asleep. I did have a couple of beers, by the way. And I was sort of thinking, oh, should I just stay a bit longer just in case someone knocks on my door? And sure enough, it was about nine o'clock at night and he had a, had a rum and coke and it was um, Casey Stoner. So to have him on the podcast was um, really cool. Uh, he's actually a really nice guy and um, very humble and, and um, very much a, a, a blue comma blue collar mining construction demographic sort of guy. So that was really cool. Um, I started to think about, and I wrote this one down, um, Andrew Rouse, um, they're the Pi Bar Group. They're, they're uh, a, a company that started where I'm from originally and now are huge. And it talks about, Frank, you made me think about it when, when you were talking about the evolution of mining. These guys started on the air legs, you know, right through to um, air machines of um, air tracks coming in to, to start drilling machines to now they got a company or Andrew Rouse, one of the sons, he's the uh, chief technology officer for Pybar, but they've also started, because they've innovated and they're so big, they started another company on the side called Digital Terrain, where they're flying drones down stopes, where they're doing 3D scans that literally a company's created another company for how much value it can add and willing to give it to anyone because they know how important it is um, for us as an industry to one, it's one thing to talk about innovation, it's another thing to integrate it, right? And these guys are the prime example of talking about innovation, integrating into their workplace and go, hey, my workplace is the same as your workplace. Why don't you just use our product? We'll sell it to you and, and add the value, right? Contractors, you're a bit like a boxer. You just tell them how good you are until they give you an opportunity to jump in the ring. Um, that's just an example of the evolution of mining. And I find stuff like, like Frank does extremely interesting, especially on Reflect. But there's also a couple of ones you talked about that, you know, uh, where people are vulnerable, right? It takes a lot for a person to... When people come on the podcast, they put a mask on, right? They want to be perceived a certain way. They want... Um, and, you know, fair enough, too, you know, companies and, and um, people and individual point of view want a certain perception painted about them. Uh, so that's why they come on the podcast. So you do want to make sure you, you make them look good and stuff. But the ones I really like, which you talked about, was the ones where people are vulnerable, people that pull the mask down, the people that really dig deep into it personally you can see it sometimes where they hold back and they go oh wow this is a bit of a deep topic and not not saying it gives you fulfillment that you've got them to that spot but it's willing that they're willing to go there and it's, it's a dark corner but oh uh, you know brett robbo he's been on the podcast a couple of times I think he's the one that's just come out recently he's a personal mate he's had a lot of adversity in life um uh, a guy that's doing a lot of really good work um in the mining industry episode um 95 is uh Lach lachlan samuel He's actually on a tour around Western Australia right now doing a lot of mental health work and uh, does a lot of work around um, vulnerability and um, mental health, which is a big thing in, in Australia. Like, you know, you fly away and, you know, Fort Mac and all them guys that do the two weeks on, um, you know, two weeks off and no different into Australia. And then all of a sudden we're pretty blue collar, uneducated demographic, right? So they go away and they probably don't have the, the right tools they need to be able to manage a fly-in flight lifestyle. And they call it in Australia the golden handcuffs, golden handcuffs where you earn a lot of money, but all of a sudden you can't get away from it. So yeah. there's a lot of topics we could talk about that that float my boat. But yeah. you know, I could probably go on for another half an hour for the amount of podcasts that I've done. I, I, when you when I seen the question, obviously the pre notes for the podcast, I was like, I got no idea what to choose, so I just chose three that. Um, that stand out to me just from the pages that I looked at, but I could I could sit here and rattle on for ages about it. Yeah, Peter, you, and that's and that's uh, you know, and 
obviously the the popularity of your show but also that just the way that you actually will dive into these topics is a big reason that i wanted to to have you on the show and talk about that approach um alexandria um I, i'm gonna put the same question to you i mean i my introduction was going right onto your website uh, before we'd even spoken. Um, you had a video, I'm, I'm looking at it right now, the hydropower video, the history of energy, the rise of China. And again, the thing that stood out to me was just how well done they were and how good the information, it was simple, but it was, de- it was detailed. Um, you know, it was, what, uh, is there a couple pieces of content that you put together? I mean, these are not Again, you make them look easy, but they're not easy productions um, to put this stuff together. Is there a couple that you, when you saw that your team had produced it and you'd been a part of it, um, you know, there must have been a lot of pride. Is there a couple that stand out? Oh, man. Yes. I guess that's a short answer. I think, uh, I mean, yeah, we, have, we do have our videos, but it's huge. Yeah, usually our executive director who does them, Aaron. Um, and I guess what I love most about his brain is just his ability to zoom out 10,000 feet, capture the most salient points. And I guess I'll touch on two. Um, I mean, the rise of China was pretty revolutionary for us. Like with almost no marketing budget, we just had like thousands of views come in on it just because it was such a salient topic. It's amazing. Uh, and, and kind of like that, di- that dichotomy you see of um, sort of a more dictatorial, non-democratic in- communist party, but also bringing 800 million people out of poverty um, and just like that dichotomy and that what, what, what does it take? Well, a mass amount of coal and the supporting the mining industry, supporting those frontline workers who work in those fields. Um, so I guess that, that was one piece that really stood out to me. And the other was I was invited to guest write um, to a sort of feminist anti-fracking um, climate activism group as their expert, like in a past life before I joined the tech world and, of course, running Energy Minute with my peers. Um, I, fra- I planned, fracked, and delivered natural gas and oil uh, in central Alberta. And to be invited to speak as a geophysicist with my technical hat on, on fracking, to be that expert for this San Francisco-based anti-fracking activism group, I thought was a huge testament to the whole team and our ability to build those relationships. Like to be invited in that space, I think, is pretty sacred. Like it's not every day you get that type of audience to listen to what you're saying. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud, I guess, of those two pieces. Is there, is there something, Alexandria, is there something um, that you, you do come, and I'm not going to name the company that that's up to you, but you, you come out of a, a very large company, um, your background. And is there something, and it, teeing off that, that you, you spoke, um, you know, to in a place like San Francisco, um, I, is is it is there a, a sort of a consistent misconception or an educational piece that's misunderstood either outside the industry or inside the industry that you when you go somewhere that you sort of see an aha moment where where someone who doesn't even or even if it's youth that's learning something about the energy sector um, is there something that stands out for you? I thought you'd never ask, Jared. I love Peter's comment on it's the men and women who are operating the machinery that know the most about the machinery. And I think there's a saying as well in oil and gas, which is like the farther you are from the wellhead, the less you know about the wellhead, which seems obvious. Um, but when I was an office worker, like at drilling, fracking and planning wells, um, we were just so far from the challenges that these people face in the field. And I would say the same thing is true about Alberta's oil and gas sector or Canada's oil and gas sector. 
in that you're, if you're far away, you just don't understand the complexity and the huge amount of innovation that happens in the patch. And even like we've been decart efforts to decarbonize, reduce our emissions, reduce our footprint, our tailings for over 20 years, like billions of dollars have gone into this. And I found it a little cheeky. Uh, my friends at The Economist wrote like, finally, Alberta is diversifying. And I remember seeing it on Instagram thinking like, what the bleep is that? Like we've been diversifying for over 20 years. So I think it's when you're far away, you don't see the men and women. You don't see the indigenous workers who live in Fort Mac, who run businesses as electricians and are yeah. part owner in equity. Um, so you really got me fired up. This is obviously my passion and a huge reason behind Energy Minutes. Um, but when you're far away, you just don't understand the complexity. Yeah, no, you're, that that's perfectly said. I mean, we've had um, you know we've had indigenous leaders on from from different from different sectors, and one of the stands he was a close a, a close friend of mine is a close friend of mine, um, uh, Frank Antoine, and he he comes out of the tourism sector, but um, so there's sort of this natural assumption, and he's got this uh, this beautiful braid that goes all the way down his back, and he, and he wears this uh, he has a he has a vest on with the bear paws on it, um, and he's got just a real presence. And when he came on the show, there's when you look if you looked at his sort of his profile, you'd go, oh, he's probably not for mining and energy, and but all his family works in the sector, so he's always looking for this balance to it, and and our show allowed him to actually rather than two minutes or 30 seconds at, let's say if you know a news crew showed up and stuck a camera in his face and got their little clip he actually got to expl expand on his ideas and i i will say i think that's one thing that all of our shows deliver is that that chance for information to be shared and then you do what you want with the information as opposed to us delivering this this sort of this boxed in delivery of what you should be thinking um, and I think we all accomplish it and really well done on, on your show again, because you're not just, there is a, a different, all of us are kind of going out, whereas you are having to kind of piece together the information. And I've done small versions of that and it's very difficult to do. <laughs> so good on you for it. Um, okay. I would have, I would have quickly asked a couple questions here. Uh, I would ask for the two Peters quickly because we're, we're all in Canada. Um, Frank, Alexandria and I, and, and then you two are in, uh, uh, well, both of you are Peters. Um, Peter Haddock, you're in the UK. Uh, Peter Finn in, in New Zealand. Is there sort of, do you see a culture? Because I mean, of course, especially out of the mining sector, um, you know, there's a lot of cross collaboration with Australia, New Zealand, and that, um, and then and then over in the UK, obviously, there's equipment and that. Do you see a difference in in how people um, either communicate or the types of information that's sort of being received? Is there sort of a cultural difference? Do you see? From the sort of a Canadian market, or is it very similar? Again, um, no, I'll, uh, Peter, you could, do you want to go for that for the mining bit first? Mate, I, I can real quickly. Uh, obviously, you're probably going to have um, a lot more in depth answer of your background being um, PR for 15 years. Um, but it's funny hearing um, the, the conversations evolve today around education. Um, it sort of depends. What I find, people can be a little bit self righteous. You know, they can sit back and, and, you know, have an opinion, but, you know, really they're just people that read the paper or sit in the crib room and, and, and you know, I guess, um, um, you know, run people down or, or shoot the ideas there, but actually don't have a lot of purpose about their day-to-day -day, um, being or, or, or what they're doing moving forward. And I think a lot of it just depends on, one, your relatability to the demographic or the audience. I think that's, you know, when you when you can show empathy or, and, and sometimes I'm very fortunate that I can show a lot of empathy because I come from the bottom. 
that makes sense. I started from, you know, growing up in a mining town, worked in the mines and got to a certain level of, um, I guess, status. So it, it gives me a lot of, uh, you know, I walk into mining, I walk in backwards. It's really easy, okay? Um, it'd be like, you know, me walking into a um, abandoned mine, I'd be so out of my comfort zone. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be funny. So it's all about having your own thresholds and being relatable to the to the audience. But then I guess it depends on the audience and what material you're giving them. So um, there's the workers, there's the service providers, there's the contractors. So that's like FACE, for example. Uh, there's the actual mining operations. There's the OEMs, which I'm sure, um, you know, you can talk about a bit more, Pete, with, you know, all the products that um, Richie Brothers sell from CAT to Komatsu to JCB, you know, there's a lot of different um, resourcefulness that comes from our suppliers as well from products. And then obviously there's the shareholders. And if you look at that on a big picture, then the government statutory requirements, you look at that in a big picture, we're all connected, right? And so it's all about how you relate to that demographic and how well you structure your information and your content to make sure you're getting your message across and hitting them targets. Do you ever get, um, j- just quickly, uh, do you, on the, when you have those sort of that empathy side and that real like human element of, you know, mental health and things like that. And, and I'm, I'm, I don't, I try to be authentic on this show myself. When people do the, when they start talking talk about mental health to me, I'm, I'm not a great person and I'm working at it, but I'm not great at having those discussions because I definitely come from the world of more hard knocks where you, you kind of go, no, I'm fine. <laughs> so yeah. so it's, it's a tough dis, uh, discussion for me to have. Um, and do you, do you get pushback on it from, from the industry? Do you ever have people just kind of that, that kind of wish that it wasn't even being discussed or just get pretty well received? I think everyone's pretty open to it these days, right? Yeah. The resilience in people is changing too. Uh, we talk about it. Uh, you know, you're right. School of hard knocks. Probably all of us in this room are probably no different. I'm no different where, you know, my dad, he smoked cigarettes, he drank beer. And, you know, that's what they did. They were hard men that done the job. And, um, you know, the resilience, the demographic, the Gen Ys, you know, we could go right down and break down the psychologically um, how people have been brought up from zero to 18 and then they're 18 into the workforce and, you know, their sense of entitlement and all that sort of stuff. And what happens is um, you you sometimes find people who do push back on it or are a bit hard-nosed are probably the people that haven't scratched the surface on themselves enough. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not the people that probably need to have a good look in the mirror. They don't want to look in the mirror too long because they might see something they don't want to see. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that's ultimately um, how far they want to take it. And everyone's, including myself, everyone's at different stages of life, okay? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm 35. How was I when I was 25? There's no way in the world the Peter Finn that was 25 would see me sitting on a panel today talking about this stuff. Um, right. Yeah. So who knows what I'll be like when I'm 45. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have a feeling now that I've given it away that it makes it, I, I have a feeling if I come on your show again, we're going to get into it a little bit more. Um, um, Peter, how, how about you? Uh, do you, you, you mentioned that there's sort of this, the, the culture of the idea of the, the constructions, this guy standing out in the rain, laying bricks, you know, that sort of thing. Um, have you seen a culture? Have you, I guess I'll ask it in a different way from culture versus Canada. A more, have you seen, people sort of uh, surprised at the, the sort of the content that's, that you were releasing and sort of pulling back the curtain on, on what, you know, an operator actually goes through, which, which they are amazing. These people that operate these heavy machineries. I think there's, there's, uh, there's a number of different strands here. <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is go all the way across the spectrum because 
Right. The number one asset that you have got is your people. Okay. And that's those people can make the difference and they can make a good difference and they can make a really bad difference. They can make a bad difference by unfortunately um, saying, uh, you know, rather awful things to people in lots of different ways, in, in lots of different prejudicial ways, or they can be really supportive uh, as well. And that can bring on people. So for me, what I'm about is actually telling the story of the industry from the people that are in it. So the stories come, I've got a podcast with leadership series, um, which I went out and talked to the leaders of the industry, the directors, the CEOs about what they're doing with their companies, where they're going with their companies, what they need out of the industry. And then with the technology front, we're talking to the operator community through those people and saying, well, actually I know that these leaders here are going to take technology and they want to escalate that. And I'm tomorrow morning, I'm on a panel with uh, Highways England, which is basically a workshop with a lot of senior people in the industry. Now, Highways England looks after all our big roads, our motorways and infrastructure, and they're pushing as a client to get technology in. They're pushing for change, innovation, acceleration of all of that stuff. And so are the people there. Now, that's all well and good, but if you don't explain that to people in the industry uh, that are actually then down the other levels at, at maybe site management level where they've got to learn all this new technology how to use a, a rover with a screen on it how to use your your smartphone with uh, basically shows you what the underground utilities could be you know then you don't take them on that journey and the equally the other way around is we've got a lot of pushback on technology from operators that are saying well it's taking the skill away so my last few videos with operators, one guy called Murray, he's, he's like literally going to be retiring, you know, and he said, quite bluntly, I don't want to do this technology. I didn't want to do this technology stuff. Uh, they didn't kind of make him. They said, Murray, you're the best operator we've got. We're on the most expensive piece of equipment we've got. We have to use this because it's 3D. Please, can you help us, Murray? And he goes, all right, then. And guess what? It took him two to three days to learn it in a steady process. And he was basically bashing out that site when the other people were, hadn't even arrived on site, you know, because he's the operator that can do it. But it's a confidence thing. It's like me coming on this show today, you know, I'm coming on now because I've managed to get myself in front of cameras, you know, so you saw me in July, 2019 and I'm like, you know, but now it's like I'm, I'm passionate about it. I know I can tell the story, and that's why I, I want to come on things like this. You know, and then our market's very different. We're plant hire led, so we've got big plant hirers that hire out equipment. So we're not contractor led in the UK, and we don't have oh. mines, and we we do have quarries. But you know, a lot of that stuff is is completely different to what the contractor culture is in in different parts of the world include including europe and so we 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 have technology innovators and adopters that may be owner operators so they'll buy the equipment own it themselves and operate it themselves as a single unit and then build their business but they're the, they know the value that if i can do something quickly and i can do it in one day instead of two days because i'm charging people per day or because I'm then, uh, I, I'm going, oh, I'm, I'm not making any more money. But actually, these guys have turned around and gone, actually, I'm going to charge 
and change my model per job. So I'm going to charge for the job. Now I can do it 50% less time. I can do more jobs and I can make more money. But they want to keep that as a secret to themselves, not to the rest of the industry, because that's their you let that secret going. You know? <laughs> and so a lot of that sort of stuff goes there. And, and this goes back to some of my sort of content I'm proud of. I mean, I went to Con Expo and I did about 35 interviews in four days when I literally ran around the show, did a lot of work with Caterpillar, but ran around the show grabbing people with, with 10 gallon hats because I needed to interview someone with a 10 gallon hat about something, you know, and, and stuff. And I really enjoyed that because you're getting people in the moment about what they want to do and talk about. But the, the most important people that I interviewed were, were two young children called Eve and Pierce. And Eve and Pierce were the kids of the Global Operator Challenge winner for Caterpillar's Global Operator Challenge that had 10,000 people around the world in it. And their dad won it. And I was there. I did the only interview bar the Caterpillar people with the winners and, um, you know, uh, Joss, the boss, as they said, um, let me interview his kids. And they were like, my dad's won the Operator Challenge. And that was like, this is it. You know, we had a finning winner from Canada. He was the runner up was Tommy from the UK's finning dealership. And that was just all about operators. And it was like, it was so exciting. It kind of brought Hollywood to our industry. And I think that's what we need to do. Bring Hollywood, bring excitement, bring fun, bring passion. And, and I guess as a dad, my favorite, favorite interview of all time was my uh, then 11 year old son who I took on a dig day. Uh, he got into um, a machine with a Leica Geosystems tablet, and I'd explain to him how it works. And I say, why don't you try and explain how that works? Lucas is his name, uh, on camera, son. And uh, he did it in one take. And I'm like, right, I'm done here. You know, I've just got to write, I'm just got to take him, put him in front of camera and be the manager and take the money, you know? But that's the proudest moment because he'd gone out and listened to all the things I've done. Some of his mates at school that are now 13 have listened to things I've done. And so that's the next generation coming through. Yeah. You know, and this is what it's all about. It's changing perception. It's having the energy and it's saying, look, there's, there's a big operator, huge operator shortage here, massive. We've got HS2, which is a high speed rail link. And they're gonna hopefully uh, Lucas and one of his mates maybe is going to launch an operator hub. You know, why get the the white men in suits at the age of forty plus teaming up for the photo shoot? No, get get the young people to ask the questions. Why should I become an operator? Why should I come into this industry? And you get people like Peter who are telling them why to come into this industry. You get people like Alexandra who are basically turning around and saying, this is your future. This is the usage of energy. Can we make a difference with that? They're all clued into this. Yeah, these young people are clued into this. They want us to be clued into this. And then, yeah, I'm with Frank. Frank all the way on history. I mean, I've list, watched some of your videos over the last few days and it's just like, that looks just awesome, but I would be scared to death and I just couldn't do it. So I'm glad Frank is doing it for me. But, you know, it's, it's about saying, create the content, bring great guests that you've brought together today, make it exciting, be enthusiastic, recognize that you've got to create it as an animated video because that's what people want to look like and want how they want to see that. 
but also recognize that as somebody that's been in the industry like Peter, ask the real questions that matter and talk until the conversation ends. Now, and, and, and I mean, my the best thing that's going to happen to me next year is I'm doing a live show, which I'd love to get you guys on. We're doing live shows uh, with two other influencers where we're literally going to say, what's, what's the new equipment? What's the news? What's happening? What's going on with Brexit? How is that affecting this? What, you know, and just really make it live and, and, and get people to tell their stories because that's what we, we're here for, storytelling. Yeah, it is. It, it really is. And, um, and the, I mean, even I, I had an exterior company, which I brought up many times on the show years ago. And I mean, it was just living in this tiny little box. That, that's how I, I operated. I mean, there was a few suppliers and maybe the supplies came from overseas. But nowadays, I mean, just the, the ability to actually have a, some really good relationships with people that you've never met is, is absolutely incredible. Um, Frank, I've got to, I've got to ask you, um, and this is, uh, to me, this is an important topic because I mean, anybody who watches, sorry, anybody who watches my, my show or, or the, the show that Crownsman produces, um, knows we promote heavy industry. We want mining, energy, transportation, construction. We want these industries to do well. Part of that is holding people accountable. Have you got have you got some pretty heavy pushback um, for for going into these sites and and sort of showing how things not just the old mines but some of the newer ones how they've been they've been left and I, and I just want to put a little caveat to that is that the people that come on our show generally want mining to be held accountable because they want that high standard so that the industry gets better. Um, have you gotten that pushback from from going out onto some of these sites? You know, I, I share that same view. I'm, uh, I've never really said anything against mining. I'm not against mining in any ways. And, and that's, thing, that's been a real kind of disappointment to me. Um, I, I've tried uh, a lot, of, I've done a lot, a pretty large audience, 15 to 20,000 people watch my videos every single day. Um, people are very interested in mining. They want to hear the story. And part of the story was, so we tell the story about the historic stuff, but, but also tell other, other stuff. And I'm really keen, and we've had some miners, small miners that said, well, come in and come to our mine and we'll show you, tell you the story about how we're searching for gold and the small thing and all that. And it's really awesome. But what I'd really like to do, and there's no mining company, every time I've asked them, they always tell, they just ignore me. There's no major mining company that will, that will allow me to come onto their thing. And all I want to do is say, tell us the story, um, show us how you find the minerals and how we go in there, develop the, the underground drifts take the minerals out and then let's go through the process and um, let's go through the, the mill. We'll show how you guys make concentrate. Yeah. And they don't want to do it. I, I don't really understand that because um, it's like, I don't know if they have anything to hide. I think they're doing things responsibly, but why wouldn't they get that message out? Because people don't know that. Nobody knows that. Nobody's telling that story. And, and I think it's very important for, for, for uh, corporations that are, that are acting responsibly to be transparent and let people tell those stories. Like I know a lot about the whole process and you know, and I'm not there to embarrass them or anything like that, but um, I've, I've talked to a lot of people and they, they said, oh yeah, you know, we'll, we'll arrange a tour and that. And then they talk, no, the lawyers don't watch anywhere. No, you can't, no, no. But I, don't, I really don't understand that because I'm not out there to embarrass anyone. So I think that's a real, um, I think the benefit, the, there could be a huge benefit to, to, uh, to companies that would be actually be more transparent about the process. 
Yeah. I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, that does. No, it, it, that, uh, and I will say we've got a very large email list and I know some of the big companies are on it. So if you are watching, which you probably are, um, give Frank a call, let him come on your site. <laughs> Can I say one more thing? Cause I, I'm sorry, yes. backtracking your editor and that. So about the question you said about my favorite video, but, um, if I had to pick one video that I, that I'd want people to see that I've never seen any of my stuff, we got a $60,000 grant from TELUS because all my viewers voted for it. It was kind of a fan thing. So we got $60,000 to uh, tell a story about an abandoned mine. It's called Undermine. So uh, they hired a professional producer and editor and all that. So it was a fascinating story about uh, the two largest uh, mines in the British Commonwealth uh, of, of the Phoenix mines here in Grand Forks. And then uh, that operation moved to Antioch. It's just a fascinating story. And it's a really well, uh, if you're really interested in mines and history and how they evolved in the whole industry, um, I'd invite you to watch that one. I'll, uh, I'll make sure, Gary, we'll make sure we get a, a That'll link. be the link that I would like people to see. Yeah, if they're I'll, I'll, I'll make sure we have a link to it so people can find it. Um, okay, it's, it's been me asking the questions the whole time, everyone. Um, and I do, don't have to put, you, could, you can do a pass on it, but is there, um, I mean, all, by now all of you are fairly familiar with each other. Are there any questions you had for one to the other? Uh, Peter, Peter Haddock, we'll start with you. Um, did, you did you have anything you wanted to ask any of the, uh, your, your fe fellow panelists today? Yeah, well, I want everybody to tell me very quickly what drives them to continue to do the content. You know, I'll, I love it. I just, it's like a drug. But what drives you and what is the one thing that if you could guarantee that happened uh, to your content, would it be? Well, I could start. I guess the reason I do this is because I'm retired. I've got nothing to do. So that was, I was a rancher. I worked in the oil patch and stuff. So I, I know all the kind of stuff that uh, you guys are talking about, run equipment all my life and cleared land stuff. So I was retired and, and uh, I wanted to move on to something else. So uh, my biggest fear is I don't have nothing to do. Uh, so I started doing this and I, I really got interested in doing the film thing. So um, uh, so I kind of enjoy uh, having something to do and people appreciate it. And uh, I think I'm doing something worthwhile. So that, that, that's, <laughs> I guess that kind of drives me to do what I do. I, uh, for me, it's the connections and outcomes. Uh, that we get notes that are that say things like you've changed my mind about XYZ or I never thought about sustainability that way from within the patch. Um, so I think it's it's the relationships and the outcomes and like the anecdotal qualitative, even though I'm afraid that this like it's the qualitative feedback that I get that I think motivates me. Mate, um it's a good question too. Um for me personally, uh and it's a pretty deep why is um Mining is where I come from, right? From zero to now. And, and, and I'm really keen to help my demographic as much as I can. Like my people, they're, they're, uh, to be able to help them around a range of topics, you know, um, mental health, money management. And obviously uh, outside of helping my demographic is, is making it attractive for other people to come and explore the industry for what it's got and what it's got to offer. And I think a, a, a big thing, for, you know energy minute and what you guys do it's that you know perception versus reality because perception is reality how someone perceives it and how, it's, it's what they think it is so to be able to try and challenge that perception and have some interesting tough conversations give that education out there well you know it's a big thing living here in new zealand new zealand's a very green country and australia's very deep um mining um culture and, you know, my wife's um, friends that have one wine and, and the conversation would go, oh, you earn a lot of money in mining. You go, look, it does pay well, not going to lie, but it also has its downtimes as well. 
And then all of a sudden, two wines in there. You know, New Zealand have had a, 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 a about 10 years ago, a Pipe River coal mining accident, which is pretty bad. And actually, obviously, changed legislation as a whole in New Zealand, where in Australia, um, you have the normal public legislation. And then you have a mining legislation, which it's above the, the, the normal government legislation. The mining, everything's written in blood. So you can sort of see um, as the wines start to flow, the questions start to get tougher and they start to get comfortable because they just don't have the education of all these mistakes that have happened in the past. It hasn't means they've gotten worse. It means we've evolved and got better. And I think a lot of mining companies who listen to this, and we talked about, you know, Brazil, um, they had a big um, tails down slip a few years ago. Um, you know, that sort of incident doesn't make that company look bad. It makes us all look bad, right? We all get tired of that brush. So I'm here to put my own flag in the air and say, you know what? You can, you can, you can mute all that. Like there is some good people in this industry that are doing good things that are trying to achieve outcomes for the benefit of the whole world, you know, around education. I don't know how many, how many elements of a, of a mine people have in their phones today, copper, lithium, gold, um, you know, the house is powered by coal or whatever. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of education to go around it. That's for sure, Pete. No, if I might, Peter, uh, that's, a, that's a really good point. And the thing is, the general public is really um, misinformed about mining. They think that in the past, a long time ago, around the 1900s, a prospector go there, find a little deposit of silver, start a little mine, and he could take that ore and take it to the smelter. There's smelters everywhere and get the value of gold or silver or whatever it was out of that thing. And, and people have that perception that's still that way. It absolutely is not. Um, even if you were a, a fairly large junior mining company and found a pretty big deposit of silver, um, there's almost nothing you could do with it. Um, there's only one, one, uh, one smelter left in all of British Columbia and trail. Uh, they don't do any custom smelting at all. They have a few mines they stuff to. The only way you could ever develop a deposit now on a small scale, you'd have to build your own uh, mill and that concentrate would have to be shipped offshore, uh, probably in 10,000 ton lots at least. It's a huge thing. I mean, there's, and, and the reason, and part of the reason is like some of these big environmental disasters that's happened. Um, there's a mining company, a junior mining company that, that all they want to do is pump the water out of, a, out, of, out of a mine. It took them eight months of permits and public hearings just to, just to pump, you know, melt water there. But there's good reasons for that. There's, there's mining companies, small operators that have been reworking tailings here um, that use cyanide and stuff to uh, go through old gold tailings. Uh, the dam broke and killed all the fish in the yeah. creek. It cost you know, millions and millions of dollars for the government to clean that up. Uh, the Mount Pauly, uh, and it goes on and on. These, so these, there's big, huge environmental disasters. Um, the Faro mine in the Yukon, and, and, and interestingly, when we talk about energy and stuff, I don't know if you know this, but the, um, the Anvil mine in, in um, in, in the Yukon, used 70% of the electricity generated in the, in, in the Yukon when it was operating. It was a huge mine. Wow. It ran for 30 years. The, the, that company went broke. So the government got stuck with this huge acid leaching problem. Just did a video on it. And uh, it's going to cost a billion dollars to clean that up. You know, And so we got to do things differently in the future. I mean, they started that mine back in the 60s. Nobody gave a shit about acid generation or fish or nothing back then. Um, so there's good reasons for all these regulations and why they don't want these little mom and pop operations and all that and i don't think i think there's a pretty good balance between the environment and the regulations but i don't think that story is really told and people really don't understand why they don't allow these little mom and pop operations and why it's a lot different than it was in the past the past caused a lot of problems and uh, you know and i think the, the industry and the regulations have really kind of kept up with with the problems that have done a really good job and i think um 
you know, most of the mining operations are fairly uh, are fairly responsible and and everything's kind of coming into sync. So I, I think it's a good news story, really, but you don't hear it that much. You're definitely right, Frank, and I'll, I'll give it back to you in a minute, Jared. Um, the, um, you know, it's funny how much we've evolved, right? The old reflection thing. We've evolved so much as an industry. That's why I like what you do, Frank, because you look back and, and um, you think, wow, like we've done a long way. And unfortunately, it's people before us, you know, it can't change the past, can we? But we can change the future. And that's ultimately what we've got to do. And be able to stand on this. I've got a lot of old mates in the industry. And, and trust me, they're, they're not that easy to get on the podcast. But I still stay in touch with them because it's like having the ability to stand on the shoulders of giants. Whether I agree with them, whether I, I take the attributes that I want to take or don't take the ones I don't want to take. Some are pretty, um, you know, grumpy, old, white, rich men. But they have a value to add if you know where to look for it and how to ask the questions and, and take it for your own personal use. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to quickly jump in on that. I think that's a, a good point. It's like they're, they were, I think it was John Wayne or something. They were trying to cancel him at one point. And uh, I, I think for me personally, um, it's take responsibility for you now and the future that you're creating. Let's not spend so much time looking back on all these people that messed up. Probably look at yourself, um, which is what I've tried to do. And um, that probably is going to get us a, a, a better result for the future. Um, Alexandria, um, how about you? Do you have any questions for uh, for anybody that's that's on this panel? Oh man, I feel like so much has been covered. I know. No, we don't. <laughs> you don't. You don't have to come up with something if you don't. But but if you do have something, you're you're willing to. I did have one quick question for Peter. Um, in addition to a quick comment for Peter Finn and then Frank, I think the comment would be that I would just so much love to see like the industry, mining industry, thrive in countries where they have environmental regulation. And I think that it's just such a strong push that we should be more aware of as global citizens. Just if they don't come from Australia or New Zealand or Canada, these products come from somewhere. Um, so my question was for Peter on, you had a video on the circular economy. And I guess if you can just describe, like that's a really in vogue term among progressives. And I'd like to just hear from your perspective, um, what does that, I guess, what does that mean to you in the UK uh, into the projects that you work on. And do you see a shift in thinking? Yeah, so um, the circular economy here is now changing the way in which people think. So that video you're talking about was a really industrial city of Wolverhampton that's down the road. So huge contaminated soil, the land was contaminated with all sorts of different things on that particular site. And it would have cost millions of pounds to get that site right. But what changed with that, and that there's a company called Dunton Environmental, what changed with that, that company is they went to the local council and said, look, we've got HS2, you've got other brownfield sites where you need remediating uh, and all those products uh, need to be then taken back out to, to be soils and to, to, to be recycled aggregates and things like that. So they did a deal with the, the council over a long period of time which allowed them to set up an operation, a recycling operation on that site, which allowed then or other contaminated soils from other similar sites to come in, remediated them, then sent them back out. And of course, what that does is that creates far less miles from site to site because it's localized. It creates and, and regenerates uh, those materials for use back to those sites. So what you're tending to do is you turn up with contaminated soils and materials, you drive round the corner, you get them loaded up with, with new soils or virgin, oh sorry, or recycled aggregates, and therefore you're not sending empty trucks out. 
And so the circular economy that we're looking at in the UK is how to do that. And then what's happened is they've spent some of the revenue that they've created in doing that work on that site to remediate the site. And the site is now become apartment blocks. And so that works because you, you create all of that thing. You, you tick all the boxes. You reduce the, the miles. You reduce the carbon impact. You regenerate areas that, you, that couldn't have been afforded to do it on their own. And you work with clever people. Now, these guys have also created a brick that's 50% plastic inside the brick. Now, on the outside of the brick, you can't tell. You have to smash this brick open. And there is the recycled plastic. It's got great carbon uh, uh, benefits, but also plastic is a really good insulator when it's used. So again, they're looking at clever ways to use that inert material, because what we're doing in the UK is landfill tax is going up dramatically. So that's how the government have pushed people to change their perceptions of cost and how it's going to work. And therefore, you've again got to get over the regulations of how you can make a new brick work or something like that. So that's happening an awful lot. And because what we're doing again, and this comes back to technology, obviously, you've got good technologies to remediate these soils and, and, and things like and contamination. But also, if you've got a site where you're looking at, we're looking at making this big HS2, right? So you're going to dig holes, you're going to compact materials, you're going to put a railway line on it and everything. If you have technology that's telling you all the depths and the fact that you've got the, the, the compaction right and everything, and it's saying you're going to have all these megatons of, of earth that's available and you go right okay i know that now so i'm going to create my model that says i'm going to put that earth over here that earth over there we're going to compact that level we're going to have that bit if the compaction needs more we're going to be able to take it from that bit over there it's cleverly using the environment around you and all of the technologies and all of the abilities to change it and we're getting an hs2 every single load of muck that's going to be dug and transported is actually the payload is being monitored from the, the digger. That's then transferred into the, the ADT or, uh, or articulated dump truck and then sent, that's then monitored. So everything is matched and monitored. Um, and that sort of level of understanding and data and usage not just helps that project, it helps the next one and the next one and the next one. So we deliver on this circular economy over and over again. Could that help? Absolutely. Cool. Um, actually, I, I didn't. I, I think I only saw a little bit of that. That's a video you have there, right? Right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. I'll send you the link. Okay, please, please do. Um, uh, Frank, uh, you got any uh, anybody's brain you want to pick as we get wind down the show? Um, no, I guess I just maybe have a general comment to make to all of you. You know, you got you're more in in, in uh, involved with the modern um, some of the challenges and stuff into uh, tracking to the history and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I think probably maybe um, uh, the one thing that probably could be helpful is I think there's kind of a perception from from uh, young people, especially that that mining is really dangerous because they're aware of the of the deaths and some of these horrible stories about coal mines and and stuff. And and the reason mainly they don't work underground is quite a bit more dangerous and stuff. So, but I, I think it's um, they haven't done a really good job in explaining um, um, the advances in technology. I mean, like even things like logging is stuff really dangerous. A lot of people died and stuff. And I think. You know, today um, to be in the mining industry is a pretty exciting industry, and uh, it's no more dangerous than any other industry. But I, I think there's still kind of a bit of a misconception that um, 
you know, that's a really dangerous industry and even being underground and all that. And it's, uh, it's really night and day. So one of the, one of the coolest mines here, there's a really cool book about the Sullivan mine. It's called the best miners in the world. The Sullivan mine run for about a hundred years in, in Kimberley. And it was really cool. They had hot bucks and they had lava underground and all this kind of stuff. But when you look back at this whole thing, there's a really cool book and told all about the miners and stuff. And uh, you know, back in the old days, they killed uh, an average of a person every year. There's a lot of people killed in the mine from that. But in the last 15 years, it was shut down in 1990, I believe, or 2000. Nobody died in the last 15 years. So, you know, like the advancements in the technology and the safety, um, you know, it's just like night and day. It's, it has jumped in with a lot. It kept up with all the other sectors and the construction and logging and all the other industries and the oil patch. I mean, the oil patch and all, and all these things. Just There's been so many advancements in technology and, and uh, quality of life and, and, and all that. And it's probably a... I think uh, there's a perception of the mining is really dangerous and stuff, and it's, it's false as far as, as far as I know. So, yeah, and I, so I think that, I will say I yeah. think I think there's been um, I think with all the content that is being put out there, I think that perception is at very least being challenged at this point because yeah. of all this this sort of uh, information that's getting put out. Um, Peter, um, you do some great interviews. You you honestly do, and um, so I'm going to leave the last. Do you have uh, Do you have some questions or a question that you'd like to to pass off to somebody? You left the um, best for last, mate, which I, I appreciate. Um, <laughs> Frank, um, you're right, Frank. You know the education between underground metalliferous versus underground coal. It's it, they're totally different worlds, and I, I've done a really good podcast. So Dingy Patterson, uh, episode 111. Um, he's actually a mate of mine. He's actually got both backgrounds in underground coal and underground metalliferous. I actually met him in an underground metalliferous mine here in New Zealand, uh, where he was the mine superintendent at the time. But he's actually the head of the re-entry that's heading into the Pike River, Pike River re-entry crew that um, the government are funding to be able to try and find some evidence uh, around the explosion to how it come about and all that sort of stuff. It is a bit of a, a political um, heartstring especially in a, in a non-mining country. So there's a lot to it, but it's a really good podcast to, to you know, also give a good insight to even underground, underground coal mining, right? The statutory requirements underground coal mining now absolutely through the roof. Like it is a, a very safe place to work. We're all trying to reduce the amount of depths in mining. The, the task of doing the mining method is still the same. It's just a lot more safer these days, the precautions that's coming into play, the innovation. So I really appreciate you um, touching on that topic because it, it's an important topic and a, an important perception to get out there. But out of this whole conversation, uh, the only thing that I've got to take out of it is, is how much we can actually learn from each other. Uh, mm -hmm. Hearing you all talk, it, it, it uh, absolutely different industries, different perceptions, different um, um parts of the world and, and all them sort of questions that come to mind. And I think everybody here has probably um, bit their tongue a little not to come out and uh, take over the interview and just start asking questions about certain topics they're interested in. You should see my notepad, it's pretty full. Um, but I, I am gonna wrap it up with, with one question and it's gonna go to you, Alexandra. Um, you know, with, with Australia and New Zealand, right? You talk about perception. So in, in Australia, every 50 kilometers, you see a mine site, especially in WA, right? You go past mines, you see big tailings dams. But in New Zealand, uh, the perception is totally different. It's a very green country. They're very keen to keep it green. So you look at, you watch companies like, and don't get me wrong, in Australia, there is a lot of um, talk around uh, social license to operate, doing right things by the community and the environment, and definitely 
trust me, Australia is um, in my eyes, and I don't want to be a one-eyed Aussie here, but we I like to think we're elite in in the field of mining. Um, and you know, I could go down a whole other conversation with yourself, Pete, about contractors and and industries becoming more transactional. When why would they do it themselves when they can pay someone like me and just do a transaction arrangement where, where they carry the risk? But you start talking about um, good companies like in, you go watch uh, follow a company called Oceana Gold. They're, they're the company I work for here in New Zealand. The effort they put into marketing their um, rehab of old mine sites. It's absolutely, you know, trying to give out the message that we're not just sitting here on our on our hands saying, oh, we mined that globe pit and now we're not doing anything with it. You know, the, 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 the trees that they're replanting, the environment they're trying to shape. You talk about back in the day where cyanide has been dumped into the wrong places. You know, the environment recovered. Right over time, people pump money and resources into it. the environments in a very adaptable thing, and you know we're we're far from them day. Them days are well and truly begone. So we've got a lot of um, interesting perceptions out there to what mining is perceived like, and I guess it comes down to the question I'm going to ask you now, Alexandra. Is um, there's some good companies out there. I talk about New Century Resources. They're a company in New Zealand. My mate works for, and they're recycling. Um, old tailings dams where they're washing the old tailings up with the grades being pretty good so they know what they're getting and you see the big companies MMG actually sold them the mine because they were keen to ensure that deposit got utilised to the maximum resourcefulness but you're the one that and I'm the one everyone at this table but I, I take it with energy minute with you guys you, you're having a lot of tough conversations right like you're going straight down the middle and um, I deal with a lot of people from all different demographics from top to bottom. And the real question I've got to ask you is, and please give me confidence, but how uneducated are we? <laughs> I, <laughs> I think the short answer is that most people are open and willing to connect, engage. Like, I don't think it's just, are we educated or uneducated? I think it's more are you able to build relationships with people and have a conversation? And that's where like people who I think sit in their ivory towers, um, whether it's in the offices of large oil corporations or whether if it's being the head of a, of a tech firm and looking down on everyone else, I think it's, it's getting away from the ivory tower, working with having kind of a bit of self-deprecating humor and being able to connect. Like I don't think it all is lost or things are, hope, are hopeless either. And in my experience, like it's just such a, it's such a minority population that is vehemently unwillingly open to listening and engaging. I think like the other piece that I've really noticed is that like just because you don't like someone or just because you don't agree with someone all the time doesn't mean you can't have a good relationship with them. And kind of just, it, it sounds so cheesy and silly, but like I have tons of friends who are anti-pipeline or who are anti-LNG. Um, and that doesn't mean I get to write them off and cancel them out in the millennial form of cancel culture. Like, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can we find qualities together that make us more similar um, than we are different? Like, we, none of us want a spill. None of us necessarily even want to be on fossil fuels forever. Like, but I think there's just recognition of realities of human consumption. And just that's a complicated topic. And I think like the industrial energy complex is very real. And there have been real injustices to people within that advancement of energy um, abundance. So I think it's just, I, I wish I don't have all the answers, but I am very, very hopeful in that dialogue in like, 
And just by connecting like yourself, Peter, I think you have like a salt to the earth type attitude as, as everyone in this group. Um, and like, I, I really do believe we're, we're not uneducated. It's just we haven't had the chance to connect. Like, I, I really believe that. And I'm uneducated in many ways, not to go on. Yeah, and, and same. And it's funny, the reason why it come, come around just recently for me to ask that question and hearing you talk throughout the uh, interview is um, in Australia, where I grew up, it was, if you're having a mining conference, mate, every man and their dog is there. Every person is there. Everyone's excited for the, the conversations to be had to the, you know, the events, the kids seeing the machinery, what dad operates, what dad fixes. And then, you know, in New Zealand here a little while ago, um, Oceana Gold and Baffus Resources and a few companies were having a, a, I think it was an Oz IM event in Hamilton. And it got called off because there was going to be 500 protesters there. And these 500 protesters, you know, the, the local government, you know, said we haven't got the police available, the security available. And, you know, and you hear a few stories about guys that are mining operational leaders in non-mining countries and, um, you know, they're, they're the guys like people that operate in New Zealand, um, you know, their emotional intelligence and their ability to relate to that demographic is absolutely critical to, to how they operate. But it just concerns me that, you know, here's people that aren't willing to hear the side of the story. They're still willing to rock up and, and cause a song and a dance, but not sit down and be civil and have a conversation. Right? That, that's where that's where that fine line is going down the middle and not talking to me because I um, work in the mining industry. Well, and sorry, Jared. I <laughs> But I think to your point, like, and this is maybe the very Albertan Calgarian, like, while Canada is more like New Zealand and perhaps like Australia and America have more parallels and New Zealand and Canada have a lot of parallels. I think like, at least where I come from, it's very, um, I guess like we're very principled. And I think this, I, I wish I had more context of your situation, but I think that like everyone has the freedom to celebrate the, the sectors they're part of. And we have oil and gas conferences or just even energy. It's been way more diversified. We include geothermal, renewable. We invited a lot of um, sort of non-fossil fuel sectors into our conferences to try and, again, to try and be more inclusive and make the tent bigger. And I don't know if that's helpful. Um, like I chaired the first ever renewable session at an oil and gas conference for geophysicists and geoscientists. And everyone, again, made fun of me initially and then ended up being a huge success because all these people who were just curious about what could this possibly be about. Um, and maybe, I don't know if you're an influencer in that regard, but making the tent bigger was successful for us. But I'm sorry you had to experience that. Oh, <laughs> really yeah, some, sometimes people don't want to come into our tent. Maybe we're a scary circus, but um, <laughs> I, I, can, I, can, I can assure them we're not. But yeah, thanks for your feedback. I appreciate it. You know, you know, I think, let me interrupt here, but I think in a lot of ways, because it's evolved. Uh, technology has evolved a lot as far as you know, social media and stuff. Now everyone's got a voice. Everyone can kind of say say whatever. So, yeah, that makes it a lot more difficult. And I think a lot of people are influenced. It seems to me like a lot of you've said that, but the people that have the strongest opinions about any particular subject probably know the least amount about it. Yeah. Uh, you know, they they hear a bunch of stuff on Facebook. Uh, someone posts a thing saying, oh, "Isn't that horrible? They're fracking, they're wrecking, all that kind of stuff." And you know, it's really, and the pipelines, all that. The people are very misinformed, and but they have very strong opinions on it. Uh, like you said, the closer you are to the wellhead, the more you know about that. But the people that have these really strong opinions are people who are so far removed from that, they know nothing about that. They live in the city somewhere. So, um, yeah. so like I said, the social media, uh, it, it's a kind of double-edged sword. It gives everyone ever that voice to have their opinion. But um, uh, I don't know, people, yeah, uh, uh, you know, it, it, people have to have have to be able to read something and decide for themselves whether that's much malarkey or not. Right? And uh, I, I'm not sure if the average person is really able to discern that. 
You know, I, uh, I, um, a few years ago, I would, uh, we were, we were in a, a group and I was, I was trying to get a concept that I had in that, how the, you know, it's this old idea of the more you, you know, the more, you know, the, the least, the, <laughs> the more you realize you don't know. And so I drew a, a chart with a pie in it. And I said, like, uh, so I said, um, it was at Rory was one of the people that did it and a couple other people. And it said, um, I'm going to divide up, there's going to be art, um, um, history, and then politics. And I put up this chart. And I said, put in and then I, I had a couple things that have something I knew that they were very um, competent in. And I, I hadn't done the experiment before. So they, so they did all these percentages and politics, they'd be like, oh, I know 20% of it. And then history was like, <laughs> some of them were like, like 50%, these ridiculous numbers. And then all the things that they were competent in, they were putting like um, three, 4%. <laughs> and, and, and then I, I thought, well, maybe that was just the people I was with. So I did it to a couple other people and it was very consistent. Um, now, if I did it on a mass scale, maybe it wouldn't, but very, true that the more the further removed from it the more you sort of you don't know so much that you start to think that you know something about it um i mean i've certainly been guilty of it and again i think that's one thing that all of you certainly have in common is that you're providing people a detailed outline of a piece of information and i mean you none of us will probably realize the importance of that um because so it's just individuals watching it not a lot of people are going to come up to you and say it but it makes a huge difference to how we interact on a whole as society, the way that we're, sh we're sharing information through our platform. I wanna, I wanna thank you all for coming on the show and I've gotta quickly ask, um, what's, we're, we're all, we're promoting, I mean, you see sponsors at the beginning and everything like that. So uh, two, last two questions, uh, we'll start with you, Peter Haddock, and then we'll just go through. Um, Christmas tradition or what you're what you're sort of uh, hoping to promote in the new year what you have planned oh we got a we got a mute happening well the Christmas tradition sorry Jared um, oh. is mince pie which is this thing right here it's not mince meat um, it used to be in the old ages and also a nice old mm. bottle of uh, Coburn's special reserve port. Um, which uh, you should really drink out of a sippy port cup. Um, so that's some oh, of the... Look at <laughs> and we have a big thing about Christmas Jumper Day, which was on on, on Friday. This, uh, this, this actually arrived just in time today. Um, but yeah, so lots of, lots of stuff like that and old Lang Syne and things that we all sing and, and bring a bit of coal in, et cetera. But yeah, so yeah, just general Christmas traditions, lots of Christmas cheer and food. Um, but next year is just all about getting content out there, all about coming back to what you guys have all just said. Uh, I did a live broadcast with my other um, influencer friends last Thursday, and we're talking about do some wheel loaders, okay? The, and, and it was supposed to go on for about half an hour, uh, and it ended up going on for an hour and eight minutes because people started to interact and say, well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? We ended up talking about machine control and tilt rotators on excavators because the audience wanted to know. And it's our job as content creators to go with the flow of the questions and actually to actually give people answers or go away and say, listen, we're going to give those questions to the people we know and get answers back from them. 
you know, and so that's why we want to create these audiences. And I do all my work really on LinkedIn for the other live shows. My friend's got a big following on Instagram and Facebook and stuff, but I do a lot of my work on LinkedIn because I want to talk to people in a professional context and I want people to have that engaging conversation. Uh, but yet yeah, my LinkedIn has got people from all of the, the, the different elements of, of that community because, you know, I do believe that you've got to enable the conversations and you don't know who the expert is until you meet them and until they actually ask you a really good, important question and you go, I have no idea, but we'll find it out. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Mr. Finn, uh, what uh, do you have any holiday traditions, and what do you uh, what are you plans What are your plans for twenty twenty one, which hopefully will be a little more normal? <laughs> yeah, a little bit more normal. Um, Elf on the shelf, mate. I got two young kids, um, Blake and Annabelle. So every and we're actually we're away camping at the moment um, in Lake Taupo in New Zealand. So um, we're in the caravan. I just come to my uh, auntie's house or my wife's auntie's house to uh, do the podcast. So every morning we, when the kids are asleep, we've got to sneak around the caravan and, and put the elf somewhere different. And uh, the excitement on my kid's face when they when they find when they go looking for Elfie or when they find him, it's um, yeah, something that I'll cherish for a long time. I look, I look very, I look very uh, unfavorably towards the day when they realize that, that uh, Elfie's not that cool. But for the meantime, they're really, they're really enjoying Elfie. So that's, that's the current trend uh, on the Christmas special, mate. Um, and for 2021, um, yeah, it's a good question because, um, you know, 2000, to, to think about 2021, we're all got to think about 2020, don't we? You know, mm. she's, she's been a, a ride itself. So for me, there's some pretty decent changes coming along. Um, you know, full production, the podcast, it will still to continue to help mining, mining operations, you know, increase their production and, and become a full production mine site, whether it be, you know, the range of topics you can cover in the mining industry. And it's a little thing that um, Steph, my marketing manager, has come up with that we're starting a little underground version of the uh, podcast where we're taking snippets from a lot of the old ones and, and putting them into into shorter ones. So a bit of um, some gold Good. nuggets there that we've um, been able to filter through some old content. Um, mate, I'm pretty keen to keep life in balance for 2021. You know, um, two young kids, you know, a busy business, uh, a lucky wife, um, you know, and no tourists at the moment in between Australia and New Zealand. I, I know just recently come out, they're looking at maybe open the borders between Australia and New Zealand. So right now you can fly from New Zealand to Australia without um, any type of um, stay anywhere before you can go out into the public. Um, but coming this way, you do have to do two weeks in the sin bin. So uh, looking forward to truthfully next year, I'm, I'm going to try and explore as much of New Zealand and Australia as I possibly can before uh, the, the tourists, you know, you know, coming to Lake Taupo now and going to places, the bungee jump down here in Taupo. One time I came here, the lineup was so long. It was like, you know, you'd be lucky to get a spot. Now you can walk up and have a bungee, have going. a swing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll keep on going, but <laughs> uh, definitely it's nice to have that um, your own backyard to yourself. And I think it's probably highly encourage everybody, Canadian, American, wherever you're from, wherever you're at, is um, there's plenty of look in your own backyard if you want to go for a little uh, squirt around. Yeah, I when this all started, I really I was like I was trying to convince my wife. I was like, we should go to Italy. There's not going to be lineups, 
She's yeah. like, not traveling right now. <laughs> <laughs> Alexandria, um, you have some, uh, now we're, we're coming back to, uh, to Canada here, all three of us. Frank, uh, we're, we're here in Canada. Um, any, any Christmas traditions you'll be carrying out and uh, 2021 uh, outlooks? I think for my Christmas, it's like very much a blend of worlds. So like my mom is uh, a Chinese immigrant. And so we often will eat like Chinese dim sum or takeout on Christmas Eve. Uh, and then eat the traditional, more North American style of like 10 kinds of potatoes. My favorite being uh, marshmallows toasted with uh, sweet potatoes underneath. Um, <laughs> must have, let me tell you. Um, and then for, yeah, what's happening in 2021? I mean, I guess I kind of have two energy focused uh, goals happening. So of course, Growing Energy Minutes newsletter. Uh, we have a really unique blend of uh, public servants, so uh, people in office, uh, energy CEOs, and then clean tech CEOs and professionals from all these sectors uh, who tend to like our content just because we do add humor to complexity to at least make it entertaining um, and short. <laughs> so yeah, growing energy minutes to the best of my ability with the team, keep our infographics and K-12 lesson plans going. And then the other project I'm recently part of, so I work for a software company um, that's behind this platform called Energy File. And it takes artifacts from the past 200 years. And Frank, you might really love this. There's just art, hundreds of artifacts with stories relating to energy transitions um, and kind of the history of energy. So my boss always said energy is like a kind of a, it makes people calm so you can talk about the future. Um, so I'd highly recommend checking that out. It's energyfile.org. Um, and then yeah, check out Energy Minute. Perfect, thank you. Over to you, uh, over to you, Frank. Um, you, uh, I mean, you got a Grinch on your, your t-shirt, so <laughs> yeah, I so, don't know. So, 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 we were in Le Duc there and checked out the museum. It's really cool museum. And that, you know, to the oil patch and the history of, of how, the, how the oil got started in Le Duc was really interesting. Um, yeah, no, I'm not uh, big on Christmas traditions, hence the shirt, I guess. But <laughs> so, what, what, you know, we're, uh, we're kind of excited the next year and continue to kind of share stories that try to entertain people. And uh, educate them about the history if that is something they're interested in. And I'm really excited about doing a bunch more stuff for the museum. So we're going to build an aerial tram. Uh, there's no operating aerial trams in Canada. We know we're going to build a one, and we have a bunch of mining equipment. And um, um, we'd love to share the history of mines which we find has uh, fascinating to continue doing that. So. Yeah, that's about all we have left for next year. Well, I'll, I'll certainly be following uh, following it because you're doing some amazing stuff. Um, I just want to say a quick quick thank you to all of you for coming on. Um, I'm you know between all your schedules and you know coming here at the same time and prepping and doing everything that it takes to put on one of these. I, I really do appreciate. It. We all do here at Crownsman, um, and we're going to put lots of links. Hopefully, uh, you know we can share some of our audience together um, because I mean we all. We all definitely are having a different demographic taking in our content, and uh, but I think there's a lot of crossover as well. I've got to also say a thank you to Gowdy. Um, we have produced a lot of shows together this year. <laughs> it's been pretty intense. Um, so thank you for sticking with it. You're very <laughs> welcome. Sticking with us. Hope you had fun. Um, do you have any uh, Christmas uh, traditions that you're going to pull off this year? I'll just throw random questions at you now. <laughs> yeah, <just randomly. laughs> Put you on the spot. Um, I think that this year's very different. We're used to um, what we call posadas, which is kind of us. It's where you kind of go from house to house, you know, kind of like the journey of, um, uh, you know, Joseph and Mary asking for a place to stay, that kind of idea. And the people give you um, food and 
mostly food, (laughs) 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 which is like the best part Um, and things like that. Unfortunately, of course, this year is very different, so we won't be able to do that. Um, So we'll just kind of be at home, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Next next year, all the the festive traditions will come back. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think we're going to wrap up. I uh, thank you all. This is uh, we we definitely went longer than some of our shows do, um, but there was also a lot of us on the call, and I w- I did want you know it is long form, and I wanted people to get a chance to actually get to know. Uh, I didn't want to do just a quick panel and you know kind of just scoot you guys out the door. So thanks for sticking with it and sort of you know waiting your turn while everybody was giving the information. Um, and we'll also be sending you a full the full interview so you can take out clips of you know your individual conversations and everything like that so thank you both and uh, I will say Merry, Merry Christmas and um, if I don't talk to you in 2021 uh, a, ha- a happy new year and and all the best and I, from the bottom of my heart all the best to you and everybody watching in 2021 we, we need a good year all of us do. Okay, Jared, Jared thank Thanks. you very much for having us. I really appreciate putting this up there, and it's yeah. great to have, get our voices out there and uh, uh, you know, and uh, talk to some other people in the industry. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Frank. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Guys, yeah, thank you. Cheers.